this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 thank you all for coming it's the fag end of a two day event so it's a little sad that the crowd is a little thin but we hope to have it really entertaining and uh, illuminating so we have four panelists today i'll briefly introduce them and then get on uh, in the discussion First is John Samuel he's been a journalist for many years and before he started how india lives it's a data portal he worked with economic times and there's this profile on the website so i don't want to waste time because we only have 30 minutes after that we have uh, pramit pramit is the data editor at mint where he runs a very interesting uh, data only uh, project called plain facts Uh, and he's won the Ramnath Goenka Excellence in Journalism Award in 2015 for commentary and interpretive journalism category for his column. Then we have Rakesh. He's an open data campaigner and runs a very interesting uh, site called Factly, and he also works with NPCRI. Then we have Rukmini, uh, one of the earliest data journalists that we've known in the country. She was with Hindu. Now she is independent and has done fascinating stories, which are data led. So with that, we'll get started. And uh, topic is really, uh, you know, I don't think there's dispute on on the topic that numbers speak the loudest. At the broad level, uh, probably we all agree, but at the granular level, there are issues which which we'll discuss. And we have four of them very passionately following in their own respective areas of data journalism. But I think these two words, you know, are ironically juxtaposed. data journalism data we have more and more of it and journalism we have less and less of it so john in your work at how india lives you know where you make public data available in a searchable and visual format where i i can see that even pedestrian data takes a life of its own in the 3 years that you've been at it do you think enough public data is being made public so so if you look at uh, 10 years back uh, where we were uh, the progress has been good uh, so there are a lot of initiatives by the government in terms of data.gov.in and a lot of government departments have started releasing data uh, but if you have to look at uh, consistency of the data uh, and the form of the data in which it is being released uh it is not so you know like uh, barring very few organizations like uh, rbi and uh, mospi uh the rest of the departments it's a uh, it's their whims and fancies uh, uh, to decide whether to release the data or not and that's not the way you treat the public data uh, public data has to be consistent and given out in a form and format that is easy to use uh, so uh, so that's that's the key challenge um, 10 years back if it is 100 we have traveled to 1000 you know like but whether that 1000 is uh, good in terms of quality and in a usable format uh, i wouldn't say so you know like uh, the most relevant data would have gaps in it um, and then uh, i always tell this example that uh, uh, people take print out of excel sheet and they scan it and upload that data in the website i mean think of it you know like instead of uploading excel sheet for easy downloadable thing you have people doing two extra steps to make it tough to use the data uh, so that's 
So public data in, in general is available much more. Uh, but are they consistent? No. Um, uh, whether they are available in a format that is easy to use? Certainly not. Very few uh, data sources are like that. Uh, so that's the key challenge. Uh, the quantum is there. Uh, the relevance, reliability, and the format in which it is available, it's a big question mark. Okay. So Rakesh, you also work with a lot of government data, and you also are working with the state government on this. Do you see there is a willingness to share data? And how can you create a feedback loop like the gaps that you spoke about? How do you fill those gaps? Uh, broadly speaking, I believe there are multiple issues with government not opening up. And why is government not able to do this? And uh, very, I mean, most of us think that government is not willing to. Beyond willingness, willingness, of course, is one reason. But beyond willingness, there are multiple reasons. One, of course, is capability. Uh, even in the best of the departments, both at the central and the state level, you have great lack of capability to understand data right from the collection process, profiling, how to collect, what to collect, what to release. There's a great capability gap. Secondly, there is a great fear in bureaucracy, uh, which we often don't admit, and most journalists who have used RTA will admit. The fear is that once data is out, the only story that gets out is negative, in the sense you find, you try to find loopholes in it, try to identify some patterns which the government might claim that it is positive, but you want to write negative. So that fear actually holds them back. So we, we work, work with the state government of Telangana, pushing them to open up more data. And uh, when, whenever we have a conversation with uh, bureaucrats at the highest level who are otherwise well-intentioned, we get the standard answer that, you know, you know what, what is in it for me? So a lot of times, this, the question is also about creating successful case studies. You know, how, how can government realize that putting out data is useful to them? Forget about you know, journalists, people, open data enthusiasts like us, but you know, how is it useful to uh, the public? the government in itself. So I think creating positive case studies, removing that fear, and some of the government has to build capabilities. Unless there is capability there, the private sector can't go and replace or help government all the time. So I think it's, it's a mix of issues. It's not just willingness. Willingness is, is, is also a part of it. When you say capability, you mean the technical tools? Uh... I wouldn't so much say about technical tools, but I think the, the entire vision, you know. For instance, if somebody wants to, there is a new scheme and they want to start collecting data, they want to build an MIS. So right from starting, you know, what should be there in the MIS, it is, it is usually the vendor who decides. I mean, governments depend on vendors. Vendors come forward and say, you know, uh, vendor could even be NIC, for instance. They NIC. NIC, uh, the biggest vendor. Uh, they might say, you know, this is the field we should have, this is the field we shouldn't have. But government internally has very little knowledge in terms of why keeping a text field as a text field or a list of values has great impact in terms of how we use that data later. So unless those things are understood, and broadly the reason has been government recruitment hasn't changed over the years. For instance, at the grassroots today, the biggest, uh, I mean, chunk of outsourced employees is we call them DEOs, data entry operators, because they form the crux of data. But you, government doesn't have a cadre of data entry operators. We still have clerks, etc., who do the manual physical filing work. But you don't have a cadre of this. I think government recruitment also needs to change, you know, based on what we are seeing and what kind of expertise do we need so that the entire data yeah, process... Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come ends. to that, yeah. So, Pramit, uh, you've seen these two uh, people, uh, you know, discuss the challenges they face and in your own work. And you very strongly feel that processes are very important in how you collect data. Because just as three anecdotes don't make a story, 30 people or 300 people surveys don't make credible data, right? 
So can you talk about the processes? Because you have a background, you have a training in, in statistics, and uh, you feel very strongly about this. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that's a key difference. I mean, they have already described the problems with the data. So when you, if you go with the assumption that the only thing required in data journalism is having wonderful graphics or just a visualization, there's a problem. Because very often, the first step is to check the veracity of the data, the representativeness of the data, the accuracy of it, whether you can cross-check it with some other data source, which is reliable and which you have a history of using, and whether it matches up with that. So uh, for instance, while studying Indian economy, we are always told that never trust one indicator. Always cross-check it with at least 20 indicators, and then see if the trend is matching up. You know, and even the la latest controversy about the GDP numbers. You know, it came about because it was not matching with many what other... Do, can you elaborate on that? What is the controversy on GDP numbers for the, for the sake of the audience? Yeah, so there are two, three levels to it. One is that uh, the current GDP series, which starts at 2011-12, uh, is a complete break from the past. You can't extrapolate it. I mean, you can't take it back across the years, which is a break. In the first time in the history of India, we don't know how our economic history looks like. It's not about the future. We have lost track of our economic history. Forget about making predictions. Uh, the second problem is that many untested databases were used in the estimation of the GDP numbers, including the MCA 2021 database. Now we are told that there are 2.5 lakh shell companies, which are part of the database which was used for GDP estimation. So once they're struck off the rolls, we don't know what is going to happen next. And 20, uh, from next year on, our next fiscal, you will have another set of numbers. And I'm told that that number is, again, going to be quite different and non-comparable with the past. So we are getting into various experiments with use of administrative data, which in a, in a way is good. It is required. But the processes and procedures and the caution that should have been exercised are not being employed by public authorities, which makes our, our task difficult. Because when we analyze, when we try to compare or uh, make a series uh, and compare government performance with the past, it's very difficult. You have to rely on various other proxies. Uh, so that is one part that the data is not reliable. The other thing is that uh, private sources also are problematic because you have these, as you mentioned, 300, 400 people, online surveys, which have an inherent bias because a person from rural India wouldn't participate in that because he just doesn't have internet connection. On the basis of those surveys, if you make an all India kind of estimate, it is bound to be faulty. So even those basic checks sometimes I find uh, I'm missing. I'm, I'm missing. Rukmini, uh, you, you are a field reporter. You know, you, you create your own databases and, and all that. But before I come to your work, there's a very real sort of challenge in credibility of media. Do you think data can make a dent there? It can make a difference? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, and to me, the, the most stark example of that, if, to just dive straight into an example, is uh, when the 2011 uh, census numbers on religion came out. So that should have been a moment if, if we believe that data is what cuts through rhetoric and is the way to credibility. That should have been a moment where the data was able to do that. But that actually, to me, became a moment where it became just as clear that uh, data uh, suffers from many of the same, uh, or rather data journalism suffers from many of the same problems as other journalism. So in the case of, uh, uh, at that time I worked at the Hindu and if you saw, if you'd seen the next morning's papers, uh, and this isn't a humble brag, this is actually something I don't have the right answer about. Most uh, newspapers headlines said, um, 
Muslims grow the fastest. And the Hindu's headline uh, where I worked at the time said, um, Muslim growth uh, at its lowest. So to most people the next day, it seemed like one paper was saying one thing and the others were not. In a sense, both uh, were not wrong. Um, Muslim growth is, uh, Muslim population grows higher than other religions. But the thing is, it has since uh, the beginning of the census. What mattered to me was what has changed over time. And what is changing is that Muslim growth is slowing as education and you know better um, health access comes to uh, Muslim women as well. Uh, their populations are uh, slowing and slowing faster than expected by many demographers. So I, um, I'd say that day was an illustration of the, all the things the media is doing wrong in credibility, both for me and for others. With others, I would feel um, that the credibility problem there was in not giving enough context and in um, turning a press release into a news story rather than doing either the journalistic thing of speaking to experts like demographers who would have put the numbers in perspective or just looking at older census numbers which would give you the picture. And I, I'd say my problem uh, that day is something that speaks to a um, process which Pramit spoke about, spoke about. The way I could have given my stories better credibility was to give the reader a greater peek into the process that went into finding those numbers. At that time I could have felt very sanctimonious about um, uh, the story I had and uh, upset about the people who were angry about it. But without giving readers a peek into the process that went into getting those numbers, um, it's understandable that in these polarized times, readers are not going to know what to believe. So um, there is a, a credibility crisis. Um, data is not the solution to it. Better journalism is the solution to it and better journalism in the case of data as well. So picking on that, Pramit, is there like, uh, you know, uh, would you give any statistical warning to journalists? You know, because something which can be visually appealing may not be, you know, good for analysis. You know, people who deal with data or who look for data, who mine data. Yes, certainly. I mean, there's this saying that, you know, you learn that correlation is causation in your first statistics class. And then you become a journalist and you forget that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but I think, you know, increasingly th these are things that we have to, uh, adding caveats for instance. I know even now sometimes, you know, the copy desk or the rewriters would ask that why is this caveat really necessary? But since you meant we talked about credibility, you know, those things become important and gradually they are finding acceptance. But these are new things that you put in so many methodological uh, caveats, you put in notes, methodological notes, which often they're chunk of text in your graphic, you know, it, it harms the visual appeal sometimes. But uh, nonetheless, they're very important. I mean, otherwise, uh, and we put up our, uh, for instance, we use data wrapper online. So we put up our data, whatever we use, so that readers can, if they have uh, a problem with our interpretation, they can go ahead and reinterpret and tell us, you know, if we have got anything wrong. So those kind of processes are also important if we want to be taken seriously. John, uh, what do you think is the next level of evolution for people like you and Rakesh who deal with public data, databases and all that? How do you overlay that with reported data? Are we getting there or we are still very sort of far from that because we haven't dipped enough into the existing public data? So, so the, uh, I see, uh, uh, I can give you two examples of what uh, we did. Uh, it's a story that we, uh, we worked with Mint and uh, the Mint team uh, had a field reporting. Uh, so we wanted to test, uh, has the dropout of uh, ratio of girls at schools, has it come down or where it is coming down and what's the reason? And uh, 
uh, any education, uh, you ask education expert, they'll say that uh, around the time girls reach puberty, the dropout ratio falls uh, so drastically. So what we uh, looked at is the uh, database of dropout ratio and uh, whether the school has a working toilet. Uh, so we, we scanned through that uh, 15 lakh school uh, records, uh, monthly school records for I think six or seven years. And uh, what we could uh, document is the fact that schools that had a working toilet uh, had a better uh, chance of retaining the girl students. Uh, so, so this is one way of, uh, I feel that, uh, you know, like Rukmini does it uh, beautifully, you know, like she takes a story data and then she does reporting on top of it. Uh, I, I think you mine large data set that is in the public domain and uh, that is your starting point, you know, like, uh, and from there you go and uh, do your reporting. Uh, so one, one area, um, the other example, uh, we could not find time to go when the same religion data came, uh, there were five or four districts in Punjab where the share of Hindus have gone up. Uh, and then in one district in uh, Karnataka uh, where the share of Hindus have gone up by 7%. I mean in a, a state, uh, one district suddenly having 7% increase in share of Hindus. Uh, that's a great story to go and report, you know, like uh, what happened? Like, uh, uh, why this district and why five districts in out of 11 districts I think in uh, Punjab uh, uh, have an increase in the share of Hindus. Uh, so I feel that uh, there should be a uh, team that mines the data, uh, gets the insights out of it, uh, create great visualization that conveys the point uh, and then on top of it you need to layer it uh, with good level of reporting if, it, if it's needed, you know, like uh, uh, so that will be a great uh, way to go and the second way uh, I feel that uh, data journalism can go forward is that uh, uh, if you look at satellite images, uh, NASA releases publicly available satellite images at 20 meter resolution. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, iron, uh, the coal mining scam and all of it. Uh, the data here is free, you know, you just need to tap a guy who can work with the satellite images. And, and try to take a time series of those images and take, put an estimate and then try to do the reporting. Uh, I feel that uh, we need to evolve in terms of uh, technology also, you know, like, uh, because what is costly 10 years back is now available free at a 20 meter resolution. Uh, so that's like a... Yeah, even ISRO puts out a lot of remote sensing data and for a lot of stories uh, you can use that data. But this is to Pramit and uh, Rukmini, you've worked in mainstream publications. Does, does mainstream media value data journalism actually? Are they willing to put resources uh, in this? Be honest, I mean, you're freelance now so you can talk. Uh, <laughs> you, have, you have a limitation because you're no, no, I, can, I can talk uh, quite freely. See, I, I, I actually have a problem with the term data journalism. Uh, uh, but I use it because it works. And uh, so that tells you that they do take it seriously. So what is the problem with data journalism? I don't think what I do or what my team does uh, is, journalism. is data journalism. It's just analytical journalism. And we have been doing it right from the start of Mint, you know. And I'm glad Raju is here. When he set this up, I mean, this was one of the focus areas, which was someone like I could get in. And, you know, I, I didn't join as a data reporter. I joined as a market reporter. So I did other stuff. But along with that, we are always encouraged to look at numbers carefully. And we had a history of having seniors uh, like Niranjan Manas who did data journalism, but without labeling it as such. And which is why we could set up this team. And I think this is the only team that has worked consistently in a 
their mainstream newspaper for since 2014 or something. So that itself says that yes, there is support. But yes, do you I just got your first developer? Yeah, right? I just got after my first so developer after so many years. So in uh, any Western newsroom, even that, that would be the first thing you would ask for and get. So it has taken time for us to also sort of establish that yes, we can give something. Rukmini. Yes, so I do. I do think there's a lot of value for data journalism in uh, uh, media organizations now. I felt this uh, when I was at the Times of India very much so at the Hindu and after as well. Um, and I agree with uh, Pramit on the uh, difficulty that remains in uh, convincing uh, newsrooms to invest in developers uh, remains a huge issue. Um, but um, so I'm one concern I have is about the space that data journalists occupy in a newsroom. It's a slightly um, rarefied position, um, and it, um, it translates into the kind of journalism that uh, comes out from data journalists as well. So very few journalists, who, not opinion writers, but journalists, uh, write in a way that you know, like they are the oracle, telling telling readers what's right. But that happens a lot with data journalists. And it, it doesn't come from a position of, you know, malice or arrogance. It comes from the fact that these tend to be um, experts in their fields writing in that way. But um, uh, that position bothers me in uh, reporting, uh, not in an opinion. So what I would like to see more of is also um, sort of shoe leather reporting and not just in the way that John uh, talks about which is also important but also in the interrogation of um, data collection and those practices as, as well and again sorry to give an example um, from my own maybe I don't read enough of other people but one of the things that I uh, you know feel proud of is um, the uh, crime um, national crime records bureau data that gets uh, reported every year it came into prominence really after the 2012 uh, Delhi gang rape and um, I had a source over there who um, whose office I used to hang out in as all journalists do in sources offices and through him, without pursuing that story as such, I found that um, um, there's a standard practice that they follow in uh, recording crime, which is known as the principal offense uh, system, which is that um, of all the offenses noted in an FIR, the NCRB only counts the most heinous offense. Uh, so the 2012 gang rape that started us all looking at this data um, went down in this data as a murder and not a rape because that is what's the most and that was not mentioned in their uh, methodology at all. So more of that, more of um, interrogating the practices that are going back, going behind data collection, that does happen a lot with economy data more than other data. I'd, say. I'd like to see those journalism practices um, used in data work as well. If I, if I may just add to, I think this is very important and especially with NCRB, even now, and I think uh, one of my colleagues, Deepthi, uh, she broke that story of how NCRB crime rates are not reliable, although you can still use the crime absolute numbers because they use outdated uh, census numbers. And again, uh, the there were other changes with riots data and it happened in 2014. We suspected that, you know, it was because of the change in government. But then we went and checked and again with sources whom we can't identify uh, here. Uh, we got to know no, this was a committee. But it is just that they made a random change and uh, it was in a, some committee report they didn't communicate it. It's only when you check and you know, then you know that, okay, this is not comparable or you have to make some adjustment, make some assumptions and then make those assumptions explicit. So 
I completely agree with that. That, that is the most important part of uh, data journalism or most journalism, I guess. Okay, so Rakesh, uh, so we are sitting here in Delhi and discussing public data, how to access uh, that data. But the real data lies in states, which implement, uh, you know, various schemes and all that. You work with states. Do you think there's an incentive, there's, there's a way to incentivize government to actually share data? You sort of believe that, you know, data can be monetized if, and that no, might I think there have, there have been discussions on and off, but uh, I don't think there has been any progress. Uh, I think with the NDSAP in 2012, which national data sharing policy, yes. uh, and some states following suit, I think the change is coming, though it is pretty slow. Uh, what you said is right, the states have the most real granular data that is actually useful. What we lack is just to answer the previous questions. Uh, yes, most mainstream media, English media houses have data journalists, but if you go to vernacular, we don't see any data journalism, apart from just republishing what the, the wires like PT and ANI put out. There is, so real data journalism can make a difference there because, for instance, most government big schemes, you know, where thousands of crores or money expenditure happens every year, there are well-built MIS systems where real-time data exists and there is a great need to identify gaps. And this is the only way to improve government collection methods. So yesterday in my session I was mentioning to the NRGS database, which is probably the largest database we have, which is, which changes day in, day out and, you know, a district tabloid of a vernacular newspaper can have it, let's say, every fortnight with uh, talking about, you know, differences in villages, patterns, is it politically motivated, and now that, you know, all the works are geotagged and photographs uploaded, but we don't see enough of it happening. Uh, probably one, because of capability in newsrooms or uh, willingness from the management to invest in, invest in people who can do this, or just the plain ignorance that, you know, such data is available. So I think that also needs to change. Uh, what happens, I think it's a, it's a credibility issue all over, not just with the government, uh, except, you know, one or two no mainstream media house hyperlinks their source. Now this is something that I found very strange. I still haven't found an answer from the mainstream media. They don't hyperlink. So they're taking a government data from MOSPI website, they can hyperlink the MOSPI website because most readers in a polarized world now want to take sides, you know, uh, whether I want to believe something that is published in the Hindu or the HT or the Times of India, unless I know the source where I can, if I have a doubt, I have to go to cross-check. So none of them do that. So unless large mainstream media houses which have wider reach start taking certain practices which can improve credibility, trustworthiness. You know, data is a double-edged sword. So we saw what happened with the HT and the Parliamentary Privileges Committee with the attendance data. You know, while it was, I mean, we thought data journalism was good and they were, just because, you know, somebody did a mistake with, uh, uh, I mean, sorting the column one way or the other. I'm saying it has its own perils. Uh, there are lessons for everybody. Governments are waking up to it. Uh, I think the change is coming, but it's very slow, you know, as is with other sectors. But we will see more and more states opening up data because uh, uh, there is at least now competition among states to do something in this because this is, the data, data is fad, you know, let us all accept it. Uh, so which are the states competing? You work with no, Telangana. Many states have a policy now. So Telangana has a policy, Sikkim has a policy, Tamil Nadu has a policy, Odisha has a policy. I think Maharashtra, certain municipalities, Pune has an open data portal, Surat has an open data portal. I think more and more people are waking up to this, this whole new thing called data. Uh, it will only improve in the longer term. But what Pramit and Rukmini said about processes, how do we monitor those processes? So unless we know what processes are, uh, are you know, are being followed in collection of data, we cannot improve them. I think all this is, I think, part of the evolution. We've been slow. Uh, I think we are catching up. Okay, so in the context of the new, uh, you know, data protection pol uh, draft bill that is there, I have to ask, 
John this question. Because all, all this while we've been discussing public data and how to access that, how to clean that, how to present it. You, you serve corporate clients, you know, you, you do business. What makes you think in five years a company like Big Basket will not have, uh, will have better data to talk about farmer behavior or farmer preferences than any government agriculture extension program, right? How do we make use of, the, because that's private data, Big Basket is collecting it. So what is your sense? Where are we headed? I mean, will there be like Google Trends will say Big Basket or somebody come and publish something that this is what is happening in the farming community or is going to be very sort of, uh, you know, walled and within there because they want to monetize it? What, what is your sense? So I, I have a feeling that uh, uh, I wish it, it, it will not evolve in this direction. Uh, Big Basket, let's say, has uh, 50 million customers and sourcing from 2 million farmers in uh, uh, 20 states, a uh, huge amount of commodities. Uh, they would have um, uh, very reliable macroeconomic indicators related to agriculture and consumer demand. Uh, the data would be so valuable. Uh, and I feel that they would not be willing to share it uh, to the outside world. Uh, they themselves would like to become like a media house. Uh, and try to tell stories out of it. Uh, I know uh, LinkedIn has its own team uh, everywhere. Um, so uh, I wish they would share the data to the outside world. Um, you know, like Uber does it for a few cities. Uh, but more and more companies, uh, if they, I, I, I believe that the modern uh, uh, online retailers and um, online business models, they'll have very much valuable data, uh, timely data. Uh, but I feel that they would use that content act like a media player and then try to uh, put out the stories uh, because they themselves get the traffic right like uh, flipkart has so much of traffic uh, into their website and uh, so so does every other uh, online uh, retail companies uh, but if those data can be made available uh, it'll be so valuable but at the same time we should also remember that uh, uh, there is one segment of population when demonetization happened uh, there was an rbi data which said that more than four lakh villages doesn't even have any banking presence. You know, like uh, when they say banking presence, uh, not even a banking correspondence, you know, who go there once a week or something like that. Uh, so uh, that gap will still remain. You know, we are not going to bridge that gap anytime soon. Uh, uh, but the new age businesses will have very valuable data. And uh, if that data can be made available in a non uh, anonymized way and uh, that can be aggregated, uh, it'll be useful. But my Prediction is that they would evolve themselves as a media player and try to monetize the content. Last question to the field reporter. You know, uh, I mean, everyone agrees that mainstream media needs to popularize uh, data journalism, needs to take more responsibility and accountability. What's your sense? You've worked in some of the largest media houses. What more needs to be done to make actual data journalism not like, you know, 30 people, 15 people sample survey and, you know, kind of putting out uh, those kind of stories. So some of the uh, simplest things that newsrooms need to do, some of the things that newsrooms first need to do are the simplest things. And they are things that both Rakesh and Pramit have referred to. There is no reason why newsrooms are not putting out the data sets they're working with. There is no reason they're not hyperlinking to their sources. These are the first steps that they, uh, that newsrooms need to be taking. Um, and then, uh, you know, they need to sort of decide what sort of data journalism they want to pursue. Uh, there's an enthusiasm among all newsrooms for it, but um, 
the kind of resources that are needed for for really ambitious stories in which uh, you're going beyond what's easily available you know uh, when i was listening to john i was just having visions of a future in which the pr agencies of all of these companies are pumping out their tired stories about you know valentines day surat is buying so many balloons or so yeah so the, uh, you know that's a terrifying prospect so uh, yeah, but, but we'll, we'll we'll see those press releases and those pictures from from pr agencies not yes. a valuable data <laughs> the more yeah. more newsrooms can move towards avoiding that and investing more in their own journalism uh, supporting their field reporters investing in developers and not seeing developers are separate from from newsroom but i i feel very positive about all of this i don't there's no need anymore to convince editors uh, it's just what they can afford and what they can do right away it's not it's not a battle in english newsrooms right now anymore yeah we, i can we are all employed for the near future yeah i agree with you and as a editor i can tell you that we are also we are also thinking the we we are sort of late to this but Uh, we are thinking very seriously of this uh, so okay. we have a presentation by mr vivek call on cherry picking data now post which we'll take question answers for the entire session so you know i grew up uh, in this city called uh, rachi which uh, was in erstwhile bihar and is now the capital of jharkhand and one of the earliest uh, or rather uh, a funny definition of math maths which i came across when i was in school was mentally agitated teachers harassing students so uh, you know the fact that this session is thinly attended uh, you know we all know who to blame basically our maths teachers who did a terrible job of uh, teaching us the importance of numbers uh, but believe me numbers are fun and as i'll show you uh, in this presentation uh, they can be used in fairly devious ways Uh, i mean you can even make a living out of it so what is cherry picking data okay uh, i don't have a definition for it uh, the closest that i came across by uh, you know googling was this definition and this is from a website called logicallyfallacious.com and they have a whole you know host of points which sort of point towards uh, cherry picking ignoring inconvenient data suppressed evidence argument by selective observation one sided assessment slanting so on and so forth so this all these things make up for cherry picking data but you know i don't think the definition as such is very important even though uh, by the end of this pre presentation i will try to define cherry picking uh, what is more important is why is data cherry picked you know it's more important to understand that and uh, the answer you know was provided by the greek philosopher plato uh, many many years back many centuries back when he wrote uh, uh, the republic in which he says our first business is to su supervise the production of stories and choose only those we think suitable and reject the rest so the it cell is not a recent development you know it was always there corporates hide information knowingly i mean i'm not uh, saying something Uh, which is you know totally uh, wrong okay now i mean i'm sorry i apologize for the quality of this uh, picture but what it essentially says is more than 80% of dentists recommend colgate how many of you have seen this ad okay basically you know all of us who sort of grew up in the 80s and 70s and the 90s uh, probably saw this ad and uh, you know the survey which was carried out uh, which led to the conclusion in this ad uh was obviously offered to dentists and the dentists had an option of choosing more than one brand of toothpaste now this is not 
known at all. In fact, I only came, I mean, I came to know of it only around six months back. And in that survey, the dentists chose more than one brand. And one brand other than Colgate was chosen as often as Colgate. Okay. It's just that the, you know, uh, Colgate, when it came up with the ad, it only told us that 80% uh, of the dentists choose Colgate. I mean, it wasn't wrong, but it wasn't right either. Because they didn't tell us that they had offered more than one option. So uh, data had been cherry picked. Now this is something from a book uh, called Truth, and I would recommend uh, you know that if you have the time, do read it. Uh, it says consumers naturally assumed the survey data behind this claim measured the proportion of dentists who recommended Colgate in preference to other brands. In fact, dentists were being asked which brands they would recommend, and most named several. A competitor brand was recommended as often as Colgate. Now, Colgate obviously did not tell us all this because that would have diluted the story that they wanted to put out in our heads. Now, this is, uh, I think, by far the most interesting uh, example that I have. And if you have to take away only one point from this uh, presentation, it has to be it. Foxconn, uh, all of you must have heard of this company. Okay, If you haven't, it's essentially a company uh, which basically, you know, uh, makes mobile phones for Apple, and it makes a, a lot of other products for companies like Dell, you know, App, uh, Samsung, etc. So in 2010, it was reported that uh, 18 Chinese employees of uh, the Foxconn uh, tried to commit suicide, and of that, around 14 committed suicide. Okay. Now the Western media immediately latched on to the story because. Uh, in the West, you know, there is a you know, there's great belief that all the Chinese companies are exploiting workers and, you know, because of which the Americans are losing jobs and so on and so forth. So they caught on to the story and it was splashed all over the place. What they did not realize was that Foxconn employed a million people at that point of time. Okay? So 14 out of those million people had committed suicide, which basically means that Foxconn had a suicide rate of 1.5 per 100,000. 1.4, I've sort of rounded it off to 1.5. So 1.5 per 100,000. The Chinese suicide rate, on the other hand, was 22 per 100,000. So the suicide rate at Foxconn was 7% of the Chinese suicide rate. The Western media never bothered to report this. Now, uh, come to India. You know, every few days we read a story of, uh, you know, farmer suicides. Every week to 10 days. In fact, a uh, couple of days back there was a story in the Times of India on how farm workers are committing suicide. Now, uh, every suicide committed by a farmer or anybody else for that matter uh, is a matter of great shame. But I haven't come across one story in the Indian media till date which covers, which compares the rate of farmer suicide in a particular district or in a particular state with the overall rate of suicide in that state, okay? which is very, very important because that will tell us whether uh, you know, more farmers are committing suicide than is the natural rate. I mean, it doesn't sound a great thing to stand up here and say, but that is the thing, you know, that is how it is. You know, some people are going to commit suicide. So uh, now the question is, why is the comparison not being made? Okay, I would like to believe uh, you know the reason is the first reason I offer, uh, even though I'm hedging it with the second reason. I would like to believe most journalists in this case who report on farmer suicides 
do not even realize that they are cherry picking data. Okay. Uh, I mean, and this is again, I mean, I, I have worked for a few years in journalism and I can say that very safely that, uh, you know, when it comes to journalism and basic maths, the basic math, mathematical capabilities of newsrooms, uh, of journalists in newsrooms I have worked in is, was extremely poor. Okay. So either they don't realize that they are cherry picking or uh, even if they do, they don't want to come across as being heartless by comparing farmer suicides to overall suicide rates and saying that, okay, it's not a matter of great concern. Now, this is something that Hans Rosling says in a beautiful book called Factfulness. Uh, the feeling that as long as things are bad, it is heartless to say that things are better. Not getting the context. Okay. Uh, so, a few years back, you know, when Nirbhaya, as Times of India named her, uh, was fighting for her life at uh, the All India Institute, uh, I came across a report which said that uh, more rapes happen in Sweden per, as, uh, per the size of, as per the population in Sweden than in India. Now, I tried Googling for that report and I couldn't find it. And uh, I thought that was a very stupid thing to say. Uh, but what happened was that the rate of, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, data, in Sweden, uh, 60 cases of uh, rapes are reported per 100,000 inhabitants. In India, the rate is just two. Okay. Now, that does not mean that uh, India is a much safer country than Sweden. It is just that Sweden has a much better reporting, uh, you know, set up when it comes to rapes. Also, they have a broader definition of rape, which in India we don't. And in India, uh, particularly, you know, the system works against the rape victim. I mean, you know, even when uh, the rape victim or the family wants to sort of file an FIR, they are discouraged to do so. So, I mean, once you take these factors into account, saying a thing like, you know, Sweden is much, uh, sorry, uh, India is safer than uh, Sweden when it comes to rapes is, was extremely stupid. Now, I mean, uh, the thing that you sort of, you know, all of us try to, or at least I make a living out of these days, uh, how governments, or how, I shouldn't have said government, I should have said how governments cherry pick data. And uh, this is not just about uh, the current government. So, this is a gentleman uh, called Amitabh Kant. He is uh, the CEO of Niti Aayog. Uh, he's looking quite uh, smart here. So... No, no, he is very smart. So, you know, thing. So, in uh, so just uh, I mean, just ignore the slide and listen to me. I mean, I just put uh, the data there. I mean, in, if I forget, I can sort of look at the slide. So, uh, this was sometime uh, in early July. Mr. Uh, Amitabh Khan put out a tweet in which he said that the uh, foreign direct investment coming into India has been going up, and he said that it has gone up from around 35 billion in 2013-17, uh, 14 to 72 billion uh, to 62 billion in 2017-18 and he said that you know it's gone up by 85 percent uh, if you do the math uh, it you know the figure is not 80 85 percent but 71 percent but you know we all make mathematical mistakes so you know you we can ignore that the problem with his quote so if you look at you know the graph you can see that uh, the fdi has sort of been going up over the years now the problem with his, uh, you know, the thing that he, he said was that uh, when companies bring money into India, they also take money out of India, right? 
I mean, if you look at uh, the uh, foreign investors investing money in the Indian stock market, uh, they invest in the stock market, they also take money out of the stock market. Similarly, foreign investors who invest money in India to build factories and industries also take that money out. So you need to adjust for the amount of money that is coming in against the money that is going out, okay, to come across, to come with the net number. Uh, but to be very honest, I have never seen anyone do this except for uh, Dr. Mahesh Vyas, who runs CMIE. And uh, so if you look at the graph now and uh, look at it carefully, the blue line is the gross FDI number and the red line is the net FDI number. So the net FDI has actually fallen in the last few years. Okay. Now this obviously Mr. Amitabh Kant as the CEO of Niti Aayog couldn't have revealed because the story that he had to sell to the nation was that FDI is going up. Now, you know, also as the economy grows, you know, uh, the, uh, the investment opportunities uh, for foreigners in India uh, goes up as well. So you have to adjust for that fact. So the, the right way of reporting FDI is to essentially divide it by the GDP number. The GDP is essentially a measure of the economic size and then report the number. So if you report the number in that sense, the FDI in India has now fallen to 1.6% of the GDP, which is the lowest in five years. And it is the lowest since Narendra Modi came to power. Now, obviously, Mr. Amitabh Khan could not have put out this data. So what he did was, initially, uh, after this, he tried explaining on Twitter again that uh, measuring FDI against GDP is not the right way to go about it, because if we do that, uh, the uh, you know, the ratio for British Virgin Islands comes out to 6243%. I mean, British Virgin Island is the exception that proves the rule. I mean, there are always exceptions which prove the rule. Now, if you look at the Chinese data, and this is how the World Bank reports it. I mean, I am not, I mean, I didn't come up with this slide. The World Bank did. I mean, I came up with this slide. The data was all World Banks. So they sort of peaked at 6.19% of the GDP. Our number was, our highest number was some 2.1%. Okay. Again, you did not see Mr. Amitabh can't uh, say anything like this. So not taking uh, GDP into account is standard operating procedure for governments everywhere, including, you know, the minister without portfolio, uh, who these days uh, writes a lot of uh, interesting Facebook posts. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the GDP. Uh, I mean, Pramit uh, sort of uh, briefly talked about it. Okay, the gentleman in the picture is not Surjit Bhalla. I mean, it's not basically Narendra Modi. So now uh, this uh, tweet was put out by the Bharatiya Janata Party Twitter handle on 31st May uh, 2017 when the GDP data for the period January to March 2018 came out. Okay. And by showing us this uh, picture, they, they told us that how the economic growth has been uh, going up. So it's gone up from 5.6% to 6.3% to 7% to 7.8%. What they did not show us was that it had also fallen from almost 9% to 5% before that. Okay. Now, the, this is essentially uh, data uh, from the Modi years. This is data from 2014. So cherry picking uh, happens uh, you know, in this way very, very frequently where, uh, you know, political parties represent data only for a particular period. Uh, so immediately the Congress party also had to tweet something. So they tweeted that how, you know, 
growth has been coming down over the last three years. Now, what they did not tell us was that it had also been going up. And it went up from around, uh, you know, when, when uh, it went up from around 5.46% to 8.2%. And that happened during uh, an era when Narendra Modi was prime minister. So both ways, you know, I mean, this is not to sort of blame only the BJP, but even the Congress party acted almost uh, in a similar way. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last few years is that uh, we have GDP data only starting from 2011-12, okay? So what happens is when the performance of uh, Narendra Modi is compared with the performance of uh, Manmohan Singh, you have the last three years of Manmohan Singh, uh, which was the last three years of UPA, and which was the, you know, the period when uh, you know, uh, the government did not do well at all. So you're comparing the worst of Manmohan Singh to the best of Modi, which I think is not uh, very fair. Now I'll end with something that uh, Justice uh, Potter Stewart uh, the uh, a Supreme Court judge said in 19 Supreme Court judge in the U.S. not in India said in 1964. I mean, I'll first uh, sort of read this out and I'll explain it. I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description. And that shorthand description he's talking about is essentially hardcore pornography. And perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it. And the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Now, what he meant was, he was essentially judging whether a film titled The Lovers was obscene or not. He said the film wasn't pornography because he would know it when he saw it. So similarly, you know, when it comes to people you know, like me who are sort of experienced uh, uh, at handling data, and I mean, there are others out there as well, they know when they are looking at data as being cherry-picked or when they're doing it themselves. And uh, when I say they're doing it themselves, I mean it happens all the time because, you know, in an era of clickbait journalism, you need a great headline to sell a story. And if you have to sell a story uh, with a great headline, you have to manipulate data at the end of the day. Thank you. Hello. I just welcome the panel back for a very quick Q&A. Uh, please keep your questions short. Mr. Vivekal will be on stage. You can ask him your question then as well. Uh, Vivek, thank you. Why would, let's say, the data that you talked about, what uh, uh, the Niti Aayog uh, CEO showed, why was it only that one person picked it up when there are, let's say, the Congress who don't want to discredit that, and there are other so, sort of independent... So I wasn't the only person who picked it up. Uh, you know, there is a Twitter warrior called Rupa Subramanya, uh, who has recently changed sides from supporting uh, Modi to not supporting Modi. She also picked it up. And uh, so she sort of got into a, I mean, uh, powwow with uh, Mr. Amitabh Kant. And it was uh, in reply to her tweet that he uh, tweeted that the British Virgin Islands has uh, uh, FDI to GDP ratio of 6 to 4-3%. So there are quite a lot of people who picked it up. It wasn't like I was the only one. So uh, I, I want to just add one thing to the discussion, which is that uh, you guys uh, very rightfully talked about the different problems in data, which is uh, you know changes in definitions, processes, and all of that. 
uh, one thing uh, that I don't often see in uh, data journalism is the political economy of uh, the numbers. And Nagaland's population, absolute po uh, decline in population is one of the prime examples where the people inflated their population. So we as, we as co-producers and government also as co-producers are manipulating the numbers. Even and uh, one so one thing I want to ask is that uh, the the question is that uh, what is the scope of uh, you know adding notes in the stories about the quality of data uh, like whether you know this data is reliable or not and how much you can rely on that I don't often see it in the uh, newspapers so I'd like to know uh, how much scope there is for that. Yeah, I guess you should read me into more often because uh, almost uh, every month we have a story like that. And those stories are specifically about a certain database and what is the problem in it. I think uh, for various reasons, we have problems with various databases. So while not all our data stories are with imperfect data, many of them are with data that is highly imperfect. And sometimes the story becomes, the data itself becomes the story, the problems in it. So that is, that, that is key and will remain key, I think. And especially in the Indian context, it is very important. Can I just add to that? What newspaper do you read? OK, so if you're reading the Economic Times only, you will never get that. Read other newspapers as well. No, no, he doesn't read ET. He said he reads Hindu and Indian oh, Express. No, but Express does a lot of good data stories. If I may just add to one thing, Vivek, there was a piece in Mint uh, which compared farmer suicide rate versus overall. I must have missed it. I'm sorry, and my apologies. It indeed fell down, I think, in the late 2000s, which also corresponds with the period when wages went up. And so, so again, it's it's an exception which sort of... Yeah, just to finish my point, yeah, but yeah, if you look sure. at the uh, reason for suicide, then you find that within farmers, indebtedness is much higher share than in other categories. Right. So there is that difference. Right. My question is also to do with farmer suicides. I wanted to ask Mr. Vivek Kaul, the, won't the district's overall population have to be taken into account then? And the farmer population in that yeah, district? Of course. Yeah, so yeah. all that data yeah, 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 has yeah. to be taken. It's available. It's not like it's not available. Okay. So even if it's not, see, even if the district number is not available, mm -hmm. there is a number available at the state level. I mean, all I'm trying to say is do something. Yeah. Don't just report absolute numbers because in India, absolute numbers are anyway going to be big, right? I mean, we are a country of 130 crore people. So even 1% is 1.3 crore. Uh, I have a question from Rukmini and John, for Rukmini and John both. Uh, what do you think of data pushing an ideology? For example, in Aadhaar, increasingly data from both sides, pro and anti-Aadhaar, is being used, used to put a, push an ideology or a stance. How do journalists deal with that in the Aadhaar case especially? So, um, as I said before, a lot of the problems um, with data are problems that are endemic to journalism on the whole. So the uh, the you know the data by itself um, is not pro or anti Aadhaar, right? It's in the framing of it. It's in the presentation of it. So there's of course a journalistic integrity that should be playing a role in it. There's also reader skepticism. There's um, you know making more of the data uh, uh, public so that uh, uh, readers can look it up themselves. Um, Sure, data is going to be used to push ideologies. It, it has in the past and will continue. But um, uh, th that's the problem. I mean, that, that's the case with a lot of things in journalism. And this way is past it. So uh, uh, if, if you 
if you take a broader view, you know, uh, what's the role of a journalist, right? You know, uh, have a healthy dose of skepticism, question everything, and more importantly, you know, ask, so what? You know, like, uh, you're giving me this number, so you have to, end of the day, go and ask, so what? You know, like, what does the data shows? Uh, so I think uh, that underlying truth will have to remain, uh, you know, uh, when, whenever you're reporting uh, on data. Uh, uh, so. I'm not an expert on Aadhaar or Aadhaar-related data, but I'm looking at the broader data uh, stories the way I've, I would like to approach, the way I have approached, is that uh, you need to have a healthy dose of skepticism. You know, like, uh, I can give you an example of uh, when the Gorakhpur deaths happened. Uh, we wanted to know what the uh, HMIS data was saying about the deaths. And uh, everybody knows that Japanese uh, encephalitis is the highest uh, reason. Uh, the HMIS data showed zero deaths in the district, you know, where media has reported 60 deaths uh, and then uh, 5 to 10 deaths on a daily basis in a single hospital. But the HMIS data showed just zero deaths. So once you have those indicators coming from uh, data, you need to have a healthy dose of skepticism in using that data. You know, you, you can't just rely on that number and, you know, report it. You need to contextualize this and uh, do it. Uh, unfortunately, we'll have to end the session here. We're running quite late. Thank you so much to all our panelists. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.